right, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? Good. Philemon chapter 1 is where you need to go. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one from the pew rack right there in front of you so you can follow along as we study God's Word together. And as you're finding Philemon, I want to tell you that we had a great week here at First Baptist Church at Vacation Bible School. I want to say a huge, huge thank you and a big old attaboy to everyone who pitched in to help pull this week off. Your tireless efforts are not unnoticed. We had over 100 adults and youth here every day volunteering, helping, and serving. In fact, if you had any hand in helping out in Vacation Bible School this year, I want you to stand up. Yeah. Good work. Good work. God used all of you in some pretty huge ways. I can't wait for you to hear about some of that in a little bit. Uh, a little bit later in the service, some of the fruit that has already been born from that service. Um, even more fruit, I'm confident, in months and years ahead. Uh, you did good work. All of you did good work this week. But let's be clear about it. God is the one who ultimately did the work, right? Um, God is the one who ultimately gets the credit for any good thing that happened last week. It is not you. It's not Kelly. It's not us. It is the Lord who has been at work this week. And he has used us, and we're thankful for that. But we give him all the credit and all the glory for the good stuff that happened this week. Well, we're going to get back into our study of Philemon here this week. Last week, we dove into the body of the letter. Uh, what is really the heart of the matter, why Paul wrote this letter to Philemon. We saw several lessons last week about how we, as believers, should interact with one another. I told you that in Christ, there is a way of living that is proper and a way of living that is not. A way to live that fits a profession of faith in Christ and a way of living that does not fit. And I told you that it is our job as brothers and sisters in Christ, especially as members of this local church, this covenant body that lives together, it is our job to help each other know and do what is proper in the Lord. I told you also that there is a time for ordering and a time for appealing. As we engage with one another, there is a time and a place for us to direct and order one another to do what is fitting in the Lord. We can speak with commanding authority into each other's lives because we are in Christ. And we can say, this fits with, with your profession of faith, and this does not fit. There's a time for that, and there's a time to appeal, like Paul is doing in this letter, where he's kind of gently coaxing along. There's a time for that. And we're pretty good at that in the church. We need a box for ordering and commanding one another to do what is right in the Lord. I told you also last week that a pastor's greatest joy is when his people want to do the right thing. They do the right thing not because they have to, not because they ought to, but because they want to. Man, nothing brings a smile to our faces more than that. Watching you do what is right, do what is honoring to the Lord, because that's your greatest desire uh, in life. And then finally, we talked about how following Jesus is not going to be easy, but it's totally worth it. Uh, you might end up getting old beyond your years. You might end up in jail. You might end up losing face. You might end up dead. It's not going to be easy to follow Jesus, but it will be totally worth it. And we see Paul doing that. We see Onesimus doing hard things. We see Philemon called to do a hard thing. And uh, we want to be willing to follow Jesus even when it's difficult. Well, this week we're going to move on in the body of the letter. We'll see the impact today that conversion has on the life of the believer. This new life that we are given in Christ is not invisible, but rather it is visible. Paul had a life-changing encounter with Jesus, and you could see it. 
You could see the difference Jesus made in his life. Philemon had had a life-changing encounter with Jesus, and you could see it in the way he cared for and loved the saints around him. Onesimus has had a life-changing encounter with Jesus, and you can see it. He goes back to the one he offended to seek restoration and reconciliation. My question for you is, have you had a life-changing encounter with Jesus? And can anyone see it? I think a lot of people claim to have had a life-changing encounter with Jesus, but there's no visible evidence of it. And when I think through that principle, I'm reminded of an illustration that Paul Washer uses sometimes, oftentimes, when he's preaching. He says, suppose I came into the service late today, and you said, oh, why, why are you late? Why are you late, Paul Washer? And I say, well, on my way to the meeting, I had a flat tire, and as I was changing that flat tire, one of my lug nuts rolled out into the middle of the road, and when I went to get the lug nut, the log truck was coming down the highway, and the log truck hit me, and that's why I'm 10 minutes late to the meeting. I had a life-changing encounter with a log truck. If, if that's the story that I told, all of you would say, you're a liar. You're a liar. Because if you had a life-changing encounter with a log truck, we would be able to tell. You might have a scratch or a bruise or something like that. You wouldn't look exactly the same. And yet so often, people claim to have a life-changing encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't tell. Because nothing has changed. So I want you to kind of wrestle with that today. Think about that. Have I had a life-changing encounter with Jesus? Or have I simply made some empty profession of faith in him? Has he made a difference in my life or not? That's part of what we're going to see in the text today. Um, so I want to I read all of Philemon like we have every week. We're going to continue to do this. But we are going to pay close attention today to verses 10 through 14. That'll be the heart of our study today, verses 10 through 14. This is what God's word says. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus." I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will." For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention that you owe to me even your own life as well. 
Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the gathering of your people. Thank you for your spirit that speaks to us with power and authority through your word. We thank you for the way you change lives. Thank you that years and years and years ago had a life-changing encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want the life that I live to be evidence of Jesus who lives in me. We want that collectively as your church. Pray that you will teach us today that an encounter with Jesus changes everything. We pray today as we talk through these things, as we study your word, that men and women and boys and girls in this room will have a life-changing encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing will be the same moving forward. And that you'll receive honor and glory as you reach down and rescue and redeem and save. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So like I said, we're going to spend most of our time today in verses 10 through 14. Look at verse 10 with me. Paul says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Here, Paul is finally going to get to the the heart of his request, the heart of his appeal. Remember that he could have ordered Philemon to do certain things, but rather he is appealing to him. That's what we talked about last week. He wants Philemon to want to do the right thing. And I think it's super interesting that now we are nearly one-third of the way into this letter before he ever mentions Onesimus' name. This whole letter is about Philemon welcoming back and embracing Onesimus, and yet we don't read a word about Onesimus until here, nearly one-third of the way through the letter. That is interesting, especially if Onesimus is standing right there as as Philemon reads this letter. And just now he mentions his name. In this verse, we learn a couple of important things about Onesimus. Number one, we learn that Onesimus was converted, that he is a Christian now. He wasn't before. Before, he was a useless, wicked slave. But now, he is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is talking about when he says Onesimus is his child, whom he has begotten in his imprisonment. Somehow, Onesimus came into contact with Paul... Paul preached the gospel to him, and Onesimus came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I believe all of this is amazing providence. I believe that Onesimus had stolen or cheated somehow uh, Philemon and had run away as a wicked slave as far away as he could possibly get, some 1,300 miles away from Colossae all the way to Rome to try to flee what he had done to Philemon. 
And lo and behold, he gets to Rome and comes into contact with a guy named Paul who's imprisoned in Rome for the sake of the gospel. And in this divine providence, he brings the wicked slave to the preacher of the gospel. He hears the gospel and he is converted miraculously, amazingly. God brought him to just the right place at just the right time, 1,300 miles from home in order to hear the gospel so that he would have new life. Onesimus is now a Christian. And you're going to see that the conversion of Onesimus is the key to this whole thing. In fact, the conversion of all three men involved in this story is the key to the whole matter. God is not, in this text, expecting lost people to act like saved people. He is expecting saved people to act like saved people. He's expecting followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the fact that Onesimus is now a Christian, the fact that Philemon is now a Christian, the fact that Paul is a Christian is where this is all happening. This is not applying to the world at large. This is applying to those who would follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going to see more and more evidence, even as we read today, you're going to see more evidence of the conversion of Onesimus as this letter unfolds. So Point number one here is that Onesimus is now a Christian. He wasn't before, but he has been converted. Number two, Paul viewed Onesimus as a child in the faith, just like he did many other people. In fact, arguably, just like he saw Philemon. Paul sees Onesimus as his child in the faith. Not his physical child, not some kind of theoretical child, but his child in the faith, his child in the Lord Jesus Christ. He probably sees Philemon that way. He speaks this way often. In fact, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Was the Corinthian church doing, doing good things? Corinthian church right on the right track. Everything's rocking and rolling. We want to be like the church of Corinth. No, the church of Corinth is kind of a mess, right? Kind of a mess. And yet look what Paul says about them. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He says that to the whole, the whole church in Corinth. He calls them his beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. See that picture of these spiritual children? He says, I'm the one that came to Corinth and preached the gospel to you. And you believed as I preached the gospel to you, and I became your spiritual father. And he exercised that fatherly role in preaching and teaching to them as days went by. He says, therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Look at verse 17. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So in this one text in 1 Corinthians 4, you see Paul talking to the entire church in Corinth as if they are his children and he is their father. And yet specifically then, he points out Timothy and he says, he is my faithful and beloved child in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he seems to have a real special fatherly relationship with Timothy. He speaks the same way of the church in Galatia, which also had its problems. In chapter 4, verse 19, he refers to them as my children. Timothy, he's constantly referring to as his son in the faith. We see it in Philippians 2. We see it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in the, in the address of the first letter to Timothy, he says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Timothy, my true child in the faith. He says the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1. He calls Titus his true child in a common faith in Titus 1 verse 4. I think it's important that Paul is identifying Onesimus 
as his child in the faith. Now, we in the church, we're pretty familiar with this language of family to describe the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We use that language all the time. We're a family here, my church family, right? But usually, we, we use it in the, in the essence of brothers and sisters, that, that we are all brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, that God is our Father, and therefore, we are brothers and sisters. That's the, that's the level that we use that family language in, but Paul uses a different layer of family language. He says, I'm your father and you are my children. And there is this authoritative relationship, this language of provision, of protection. Paul is saying, you're my children in the faith. And, and I wonder if we need to develop a little bit of that in, in, in our practice as a church family. That we would be able to recognize who our spiritual parents are and who our spiritual children are as we preach the gospel. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But there's one other observation I want to make before we move to applications in this section. I want you to recognize that all of this means that Paul was preaching while he was in prison. That Paul is in prison and yet he continues to preach the gospel. While he's locked up in chains, he's preaching the gospel and people are getting saved. Paul was going to be faithful wherever he was, right? If there was ever a time to be silent, it's when they lock you up right? If it's ever a time to lay low, it's when they're going to execute you. But in all of these situations, Paul is not silent and he does not lay low because he saw the sovereign hand of God directing all of his life. Even the fact that he was in prison. Remember, he called himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus, not of Caesar, not of Rome. Therefore, God is directing all of these situations and Paul has resolved to be active and useful in serving the Lord no matter the situation. He is not going to lay his mission aside because life is hard. He's going to continue to be active. So there are two big applications from this first verse today. Number one, just as your physical family grows when a baby is born, the family of faith grows by new birth, by rebirth, by second birth, whatever you want to call it. And so as we think about that, I want you to consider who are your spiritual parents like Paul was to Timothy, like Paul was to Onesimus, like Paul was to Philemon, who are your spiritual parents? Who are those people that invested in your life, who preached the gospel to you, who demonstrated the gospel to you, who lived out Christ-likeness in front of you, and have invested in your life? Who are your spiritual parents? And when you identify those, if they are still living, you need to say thank you to them. You need to say thank you for that investment of time and energy. You need to recognize if you didn't have someone preaching the gospel to you, you would not know the grace of the Lord like you do. Who are your spiritual parents? Second question is, who are your spiritual children? Into whose life are you investing? To whom are you preaching the gospel currently and spending yourself for? That may be a harder question for a lot of us to answer. We may be quick to say, oh, I know who my spiritual parents are, but I don't have any spiritual children. The application I have in my notes is some of you need to get rid of the birth control, ha have some spiritual children. Like, like some of you have no risk of having any babies, spiritual babies, because you're never sharing the gospel. Have some spiritual babies. That's how the kingdom grows. People are born into the kingdom, reborn into the kingdom. That's application number one. 
Just as your physical family grows when a baby is born, the family of faith also grows by new birth. Application number two, be useful wherever you are. One, one old preacher said, you need to bloom where you're planted. And this is a hard lesson for us to learn. Let me say it like this. Don't wait. Don't wait until the next thing comes along to be useful. I'm, I'm going to say this especially to you guys. That's a, that's a struggle with students. They say, well, I don't really have a role to play because I'm so young. Or, oh, I'm about to move off to college. Or, oh, maybe when I get a job, then I'll be useful. Or when I get a family, then I'll be useful. Or when the next thing comes around, then I'll be useful. When my life takes a turn, then I'll be useful for the kingdom of God. I want to say, no, don't wait for that. Don't wait for that. Be useful where you are right now. You've got to believe that God put you there, right? Put you there for a reason, so be useful where you are right now. Number two, I would say don't whine. Don't wait and don't whine. Don't whine about how difficult things are right now and stop serving. Paul was useful in jail. Paul was useful right up to the time when they executed him. He was useful. He didn't whine about it. And finally, I would say don't stop. Don't stop being useful in the kingdom of God until you die. Then you can stop. And then you will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. But until then, if you're breathing, you're useful, so get to work. Wherever you are right now, be serving. We see that through the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 11. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Now, there are two really cool things going on here in the original language that does not come through in the translation. Paul is using two really clever play on words. Well, one play on words that actually happens at two levels. One is this useful to useless stuff. So slaves back in the first century would be given names by the dealer. I don't even know what you would call the guy. The, the, the guy who sold slaves would assign names to those slaves to make them marketable. So you might have a slave whose name was strong or a slave whose name was smart or fast or faithful or something like that. Well, Onesimus was a slave and his name was given to him and it meant useful. Onesimus means useful. So when they sold him, they'd stand him up on the blocks and say, here's useful, going for whatever, all right? And Paul is playing on the name, the meaning of his name by saying, Mr. Useful was useless to you. But now he is truly useful both to you and to me because something has changed. That's cool, right? No? If you don't think that's cool, you're really not going to think the next part's cool. <laughs> because the words that he uses here for useless and useful look like they have the word Christ right in the middle of them. So it's a Greek word. When he says useless, it reads a-christos. The Greek word for Christ is Christos. It's like one vowel, and it's not, even, it's not even a big difference. It doesn't even look, it doesn't look much different, and it doesn't sound much different. And he says he was a-christos, and now he is you-christos. And so it's almost like Paul is wanting you to recognize that his uselessness was because of his Christlessness, and his usefulness is because of his Christfulness. Does that make sense? There's some cool stuff going on there. This is why you should study Greek, or at least buy a book that will tell you these things. So two clever plays on words. But the point of this is that Onesimus' conversion had made a tangible difference in his life. 
He formerly was a slave who would not serve. A useless slave who would not serve. But now, what is he? Paul says he's a useful brother who serves like crazy. Paul says, he's useful to me. Here in my imprisonment, he says, Philemon, he is serving me like you would serve me here. And we know that Philemon is all about service to the brothers and sisters, right? He's all about refreshing the hearts of the saints. He's all about caring for those who are in need. And Paul is saying, that guy, that guy who was useless to you, he is really helpful to me here in prison. His life has radically changed because he met the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a slave who would not serve, and now he is a brother who serves well. He's still a slave. But he is a brother now who serves well. And this is the kind of stuff Paul talks about in the companion letter, Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18, says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. So in all of these different kind of household relationships, he's saying, this is what fits in the Lord. If you're a husband, this is, this is how you live, and it fits the Lord. If you're a wife, this is how you live, and it fits the Lord. Read on. He says, slaves, that's Onesimus, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So before, when Onesimus was a slave who didn't know Jesus, he was a terrible slave, a terrible servant. He only did what was pleasing to the eyes. He wasn't invested with his heart, and he wasn't even really good at that. But now that he's come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, he is serving with passion as if he's serving the Lord himself. The, the conversion that Onesimus experienced changed the way he served. And Paul is reaping the benefits of that. So here's the application. New life in Christ changes everything. New life in Christ changes everything. There are some invisible changes when we are converted when we come to faith when we come to faith in jesus christ there are some invisible changes right we, we call this justification these invisible changes where we are reconciled to god there's no longer enmity between us and him but rather there's friendship adoption into his family that's an invisible thing uh, to be declared righteous to be justified that's an invisible thing. We can't really see that. That's a positional element. To be forgiven is something that we can't really see, but it's real. So what I'm saying is there are parts of the conversion experience that are invisible. But there are parts of the conversion experience that are absolutely visible. Visible changes. Changes in the way you live. Changes, and, and we would call this sanctification. So justification is invisible, but sanctification is very much visible. In sanctification, we are given new desires that lead to new behaviors. We don't live the same old way we used to live. We live a whole new way. We're given a new perspective, which gives us a whole new approach to life. All of a sudden, we deal with decisions differently. We deal with conflict differently. We deal with temptation differently. There is a visible external difference that is brought about at conversion. Good. 
Because if you claim, if you claim to have the invisible change, but have no visible change, something is terribly wrong. If you say, I had a life-changing encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, and your life didn't change, something's wrong. Either he didn't really change your life, or you didn't really have an encounter with him. And my guess is it's the second one. Because the new life in Christ changes everything. And I believe Onesimus is a great example of this. I believe Onesimus in his service to Paul, Onesimus in his willingness to go back to Philemon, is a great example of the life change that Jesus brings about in a believer's life. Look at verse 12. Paul says, I've sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. So there, there we see it. Paul, once again, affirming, he's super useful. I don't want to send him back, but it's the right thing to do. Maybe the bigger picture here is that Paul, in this letter, is asking Philemon to do a hard thing. It's the right thing. By welcoming him back and forgiving him, it's the right thing, but it's a hard thing. Paul has already asked Onesimus to do a hard thing. That was also the right thing. Onesimus' willingness to return to Philemon is exhibit A of his new life in Christ. It is real repentance. You know that real repentance is observable, right? You know that the kind of repentance that is called for in the gospel is not feeling sorry for what you've done, merely feeling sorry for what you've done. It's not merely having regret for what you've done. Real gospel repentance is observable. It's tangible. It's fruit that you can hold on to. What if Onesimus has said, yeah, you know what, I'm just really sorry about what I stole from Philemon. But I'm just going to keep on here in Rome doing my own thing. Fresh start, new life. It's not real repentance, right? Real repentance is active. It is action. It's fruitful. And Onesimus is doing it here. I love also in verse 12 and 13, the clear connection that Paul feels to Onesimus. He says, I'm sending him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart. Now the word there for heart is a really interesting one. It's not the common one. It's a weird word that he actually uses three times in this letter. And it, it's more like guts than heart. And so he's basically saying, when I send him back to you, I'm sending a piece of myself that lives way deep down inside of me. I'm not sending some peripheral thing. I'm not sending a fingernail. You know, I'm not sending a hair or an eyelash. I'm sending part of my guts back to you when, when I send him back to you. And that blows my mind because those two guys, Onesimus and Paul, have nothing in common. I mean, we got the Apostle Paul who grew up in, in all kinds of privilege and religiosity, and we've got Onesimus, the wicked runaway slave, who is 1,300 miles from home trying to run from his problems. Paul, who sees the consequences of his bold action and just embraces it, like is in prison saying, they're not holding me captive. The Lord Jesus is holding me captive, right? These guys don't have anything in common, do they? Except Jesus. That's all they have in common is their common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And consequently, Paul says, when I send Onesimus back to you, it's like sending my own guts back to you. I'm so connected with this guy because of Christ. And that's the kind of relationship we want to have with each other, right? 
that Christ brings us together despite all the things that would keep us apart. Now notice in verses 12 and 13 that Paul could have done a lot of other things. He expresses his desire to keep Onesimus with him. He could have done that. He could have pulled that off, right? Paul could have never said a word to Onesimus about going back. Paul could have never said, you know what, you need to go make things right with Philemon. Paul could have never told Philemon, hey, Onesimus is over here. If Paul's end game was Onesimus serving him while he's in prison, he could have pulled that off. But it would have been the wrong thing to do. And even though the right thing is the hard thing, Paul does the hard thing. And Onesimus, he could have continued to run. He could have started fresh in Rome. He could have moved on with his life. Even, even as Paul says, Onesimus, really, you need, to go, you need to go back to Colossae and you need to make it right with Philemon. Onesimus could have said, you know what, dad, spiritual dad, you're right. That's what I should do. I'm going to I'm gonna head back to Colossae and left Paul's cell in Rome, walked a block, and then gone the other direction, right? But he's doing the right thing, even though it's a hard thing, because that's what it looks like to follow after Jesus. That's what happens when he changes your heart. You do the right thing, even when it's a hard thing. And Philemon is doing it, and Paul is doing it, and Onesimus is doing it, and we must do that. That's the next application. Part of what it looks like to follow after Jesus is to live out this new life by doing the right thing, even when it's the hard thing. And let me tell you, I, I'm not an old man, but what I'm learning is the right thing is usually the hard thing. The right thing is not usually the easy thing, but God has called us to do the right thing. Look at verse 14. He says, but without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. So this is a lot like what we talked about last week. Paul is reiterating that his deep desire is to see this happen, this reconciliation happen, because Philemon wants it to happen, not because he's forced into it or coerced into it. The evidence of Onesimus' new life is in his usefulness and his repentance. The evidence of Philemon's new life will be in his treatment of this recently converted brother. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to do this by force. I want you to do this by your own free will because this is what it looks like to trust and follow after Jesus. So four applications from the text today, and you've already heard them once. Number one, the family of faith grows by new birth. You have spiritual parents. Do you have spiritual children? Do you want to see the family of faith grow? No? I do. I think in just a minute you're going to see that our family of faith has grown. And we want to rejoice over that. And you know what it looks like to see more and more of this? It looks like the rest of us preaching the gospel. Sharing the good news with folks so that God will bring them to life. So ditch the birth control preach the gospel, have some spiritual children. Number two, be useful wherever you are. Be useful wherever you are because we believe God has put you wherever you are. And for some of you, that might make a ton of sense. It might make a ton of sense because you just got the job that you'd always wanted or you just moved into the house of your dreams or you're in the relationship with someone who's just perfect and can do no wrong. And you're like, yes, I'll be faithful here because God has put me here. And you just rejoice over the fact that God has put you there. 
for others of you, that's harder to swallow. You, you, mean, you mean I need to be faithful in this hospital room? Because God has purpose for me in this hospital room? You mean, you mean I need to be faithful in this job that I hate with this terrible boss because God has a purpose for me here? Yeah. Wherever you're at, you are there on purpose. So be useful there right now. Don't wait. Don't whine. Don't stop. Be useful to you where you are. Now listen, some of you guys, we've got some young guys who are, are feeling like they're called to ministry and they're trying to pursue that calling to ministry. The best advice I could give you if you're feeling some of that is be faithful right here, right now. Don't wait till you get a big church. Don't wait till you get some spotlight. Just, just be faithful in the little things God has put in front of you now because this may be where, he proves how, where you prove how faithful you will be with bigger things he may give you later on. So be faithful here and now. And that goes for all of us as well. Be useful where you are. Number three, new life in Christ changes everything. These invisible changes of reconciliation and justification and forgiveness are accompanied by visible changes in behavior and approach to life. And they go together always. There's no, I mean, how ridiculous is it that Paul Washer would say, oh, I'm 10 minutes late because I got hit by a log truck. And yet many folks walk around in the church claiming to have met Jesus and cannot tell. Cannot tell. So I'm, I'm not saying just knuckle down and work harder. I'm saying really meet Jesus. I'm saying really see him and love him and know him and the change will come. And then the last thing is part, part of what it looks like to follow Jesus to live out this new life that he's given us is to do the right thing even when it's the hard thing and it's almost always the hard thing. It's almost always the hard thing. To walk back to Colossae, to accept the wicked slave, to go to prison, it's almost always the hard thing. It's worth it to follow after Jesus, right? I told you last week, would you rather have an easy life and go to hell? rather follow Jesus on the hard road. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for time together in your word. We pray that you will take it, work it deep into our hearts, give us understanding, acceptance, conformity, submission to it, obedience. And I want to pray for men and women and boys and girls who claim the invisible changes of an encounter with Jesus and have no visible changes. God, I pray that you'll burden, convict, break. Pray that you'll give them a real encounter with Jesus that changes them forever and ever, really changes them. We know that Satan would love to deceive us. We know that the fallen man would love to deceive himself. So we pray that you'll help us to see the truth about where we are with you today. And in that process, hard as it may be, 
pray that you draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself and save them by your grace. We're thankful that Jesus died and rose again so that we could be reconciled to you and so that we can be reconciled to each other. Give us eyes to see Jesus. Give us faith to trust in Jesus. Give us repentance to turn from our sin. In Christ's name we pray.